Well, here's our table of kings. I think hopefully you saw that. Uh, I added that in the reference section in the study guide this week so we can start kind of fleshing it out as we go along. And, you know, kings were appearing and disappearing so fast last week that your eyes were probably rolling around in your head. Uh, and the, this chart, I hope, will help us keep it straight. So we are down to Elah here, who was son of Baasha. So I have to make a confession. This is a true confession here. It may, I did not know this is how the Bible worked, you know, years ago. And when I would get to Kings or to Chronicles, I would get so confused. And this is why, because each King's reign in the, you know, practically every chapter in Kings and Chronicles starts with a statement like this. In the 26th year of Asa, King of Judah, Elah, son of Baasha, became, became King of all Israel, and he reigned in Tirzah two years. So back then, I didn't understand about the divided kingdom. Nobody told me about that. And I could not wrap my head around these, you know, opening verses. But it makes a whole lot more sense to me now, because what it's saying is that Asa is king in the south. See, and you can see I've color coded him here for you, king of Judah, and 26 years into his reign, a new guy, Elah, becomes king in the north. So every time you run across a paragraph like this, know that they identify who is king in one, already in one part of the kingdom and how long he's been king. And then they tell you who is becoming king in the other part of the kingdom and how long he will eventually reign. So when you read these things, don't get confused. They're, they're addressing both north and south in the same verse and just kind of figure out which one's which. So in this, in this case, it would say in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, son of Baasha, became king. That means that the following story is about Elah, Elah, who is the new king. So it just means I'm about to tell you about a new king you know, and here's how he fits in the timeline. So Elah is in his capital in Tirzah, getting drunk at the home of one of his officials. When Zimri, the guy in charge of the chariots, comes in and assassinates him and takes over as king. The very first thing Zimri does is kill off all of the family of Baasha, Ella's father. Now, this is obviously to keep any of them from contesting Zimri as king, but it also fulfills the prophecy of Jehu that all of Baasha's family would be killed and their bodies left for scavengers. Well, Zimri is apparently something of a hothead and his coup has not been well thought out. You see, the army of Israel is away on a campaign against the Philistines right now. And it takes seven days for word to get to them about what Zimri has done. And when they hear about it, they are horrified. They immediately proclaim their commander-in-chief, Omri, as the rightful king over Israel. So now we've got a civil war inside of the northern kingdom of Israel. It's like it's a civil war inside of a civil war. The whole army led by Omri 
marches back to the capital at Tirza, lays siege against Zimri. Zimri, of course, quickly realizes that without the army behind him, he, he's got nothing. So he goes into the palace and sets fire to it around him. It remind, totally reminds me of that scene in The Lord of the Rings where Denethor does the same thing, just sets his palace on fire and dies in the fire. So Zimri is king for a week, you know, just, just in the interim period till the army gets back. He dies by suicide and Omri, the commander of the army, is now king of Israel. But it's not clear sailing for Omri either. Another guy named Timri tries to take the throne from him. But in the end, Omri is stronger, Timri is killed, and Omri finally becomes the sole king of Israel. He makes two decisions that have huge repercussions. One is that he buys a hill near Shechem from a guy named Shemer. The hill is named after Shemer. It's called Samaria. And there Omri builds the city that becomes the permanent capital of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Samaria will become a huge big deal. It becomes as famous as Jerusalem and its influence is felt all the way down to the time of Jesus. From now on, when you hear Samaria, think Israel, Northern Kingdom, capital of Israel. When you hear Jerusalem, think Judah, Southern Kingdom, capital of Judah. Also, notice on this map how close Samaria is to the Jezreel Valley. The kings of, the northern, of northern Israel have easy access to this vast valley. I mean, it's just like a couple of miles away. Um, and this valley, as you know, is tailor-made for fighting battles. The other thing Omri does is form an alliance with Eth Baal, the king of the Sidonians. So get your bearing on this map. Look at the Dead Sea, Galilee. Um, Omri's kingdom of Israel is right here in the north. Okay, the Sidonians are just northwest of him. You may have heard of Phoenicians, same folks. The Sidonians worship Baal, that insidious, ubiquitous idol we've run into ever since the Hebrews first entered the promised land long ago. This is the idol whose name literally means master. God hates this idol. But Omri leads the Israelites deeply into Baal worship and seals it with his new Sidonian alliance. Omri reigns 12 years in all before he dies and his son Ahav becomes king of Israel. As we go through, I, I may switch back and forth between saying his name as Ahav, which is how you would say it in Hebrew, or Ahab, which is how we say it in English, and both are perfectly acceptable. It's just that my brain a lot of times will switch to the Hebrew because of the context of what we're doing. Um, so whichever one I say, Ahab or Ahav, it's the same guy. And do you notice something striking here? King Asa in Judah does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, at least so far, whereas every single one of the kings in Israel have been wicked. Their kingdom has been characterized by murder and civil war, and their reigns are very short. This is not an accident. Violence begets violence, while a life lived before the Lord bears fruit of peace. 
Now, Ahav is the most horrible king we've run across yet. In fact, the author of 1 Kings devotes the whole rest of 1 Kings to the Lord's response to Ahav's reign. Ahav starts off with a bang by marrying the king of Sidon's daughter, none other than the infamous Jezebel. Of course, as Ethbaal's daughter, Jezebel is a devotee of the idol Baal. So Ahav sets up an altar and a temple to Baal in Samaria, as well as erecting Asherah poles and encouraging all of Israel to worship these idols. Well, God's not going to let Israel go to Baal without a fight. God raises up a prophet to harass King Ahav, and this prophet is none other than the famous prophet Elijah. Elijah is on a par with Moses. He is such a big deal that the very last prophet in the Hebrew Bible, and indeed the last words of our own Old Testament, speak about Elijah hundreds of years later. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, these words were written hundreds of years after Elijah's lifetime. So the, the prophet Elijah, the Lord is going to send, that's in the future. So there's like the, another prophet Elijah. And that great and dreadful day of the Lord is a, is a code phrase. That is a phrase that prophets in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew Bible used to refer to the coming of the Messiah. We haven't got that far yet. So don't worry that you didn't already know that was a code phrase. But what this is, prophecy is saying is that the prophet Elijah will return to earth before the Messiah comes. Notice that what the Lord cares about most after all is said and done is that we love each other. Elijah will come with a message of reconciliation and repentance. And I'm spoiler alert, we're going to find out later that the name of the guy who actually comes is not literally Elijah. His name is John the Baptist. And Jesus identifies him for us as being Elijah in spirit and in function. Elijah is a huge, big deal. Throughout the ages, even to modern days, Elijah shows up in Jewish folklore as a harbinger of change and a voice for God. Even the Passover Seder, which developed over many centuries after Christ, that Passover Seder includes an empty place setting and a chair for Elijah. And at one point in the Passover Seder, the door is opened for Elijah to come in. And all of that is because of this prophecy in Malachi. So, the Lord sends Elijah, this original historical Elijah, to Ahav to tell him, I serve the Lord, the God of Israel. There will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years unless I say so. Now that probably doesn't go over too well with King Ahav. So it's good that the next thing the Lord tells Elijah to do is go hide in the Kiriath Ravine east of the Jordan. And so while Elijah hides out in the ravine, the Lord gives him water from the brook 
and sends ravens twice a day to bring him bread and meat. But there's no rain and eventually the brook dries up. So now what's Elijah going to do? The Lord does not forget Elijah. He tells Elijah to go to the town of Zarephath in Sidon, literally right in the middle of those Baal worshipers. The Lord says he's told a widow there, a Sidonian widow, to supply Elijah with food. When he gets to the town gate, he sees a widow there gathering sticks. He calls to her and asks her for a little water in a jar and a piece of bread. The widow replies, I don't have any bread. I've only got a handful of flour and a little oil left in a jar. I'm actually gathering a few sticks to take home and prepare one last meal for myself and my son. And after that, there is no more food and we will die. Poor woman. You can just hear the despair in her words. The famine from the lack of rain is getting very bad across all the land. Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. Go home and make a small cake for me from what you have and then make something for yourself and your son. The Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on this land. And she trusts him. That's exactly what she does. And they eat from that jar of flour and jar of oil. But after a while, the woman's son falls gravely ill. He gets sicker and sicker until finally he stops breathing. The woman cries out, why did you even come here, man of God? Did you come to show up my sin and guilt and kill my son? Now, remember in this culture, every bad thing is attributed to the displeasure of the gods due to some sin or omission of the people. What a horrible way to live. But I have to say, the way some Christians teach the Bible and teach about God often takes this ancient cultural wrapping paper and teaches it to people now to imply that Yahweh is that sort of God, when such a thing is as far from the tender, compassionate, loving heart of God as the East is from the West. Just recently, within the past few weeks, I exchanged texts with a dear friend who is convinced her loved ones are going to hell because they have not prayed the sinner's prayer. That breaks my heart that someone would think that that's how God is. Of course, God did not send Elijah to this poor widow to show up her sins so he could kill her son for her transgressions. No, God sent Elijah to this woman because of her generous spirit so she could be sustained during the famine, so she could sustain this, this servant of the Lord. So Elijah says, give me your son. And he carries the boy up to the upper room and lays him on his bed. Then he cries out to God, oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy to this poor woman through me? Have, have I done anything to cause her son to die? And Elijah stretches himself out over the boy three times and begs the Lord to restore his life. 
and the Lord hears Elijah, of course he does, and returns the boy's life to his body. And when the woman sees that her husband lives, she exclaims, now I know that you're a man of God and that the words of the Lord that you speak are the truth. All in all, three years pass and the famine becomes terrible indeed. Now, King Ahab had a man named Obadiah working for him. And unbeknownst to Ahab, Obadiah was a devout follower of Yahweh. And Obadiah has secretly taken a hundred of the Lord's prophets and hidden them in caves and supplied them with food and water. Ahab, of course, doesn't know this. Ahab sends Obadiah out to survey all the springs and valleys in the land to see if he can find any water or grass at all. Otherwise, the king's horses and mules are going to have to be killed. So Ahab sets out in one direction and he sends Obadiah in the other direction. Now Obadiah is out walking along and he runs into Elijah, who is actually heading for King Ahab's court. Obadiah immediately recognizes Elijah and bows down to the ground saying, is that really you, Elijah? And Elijah said, it is. Go tell Ahab, I am here. And Obadiah says, are you kidding me? He'll kill me on the spot. And if it, even if he doesn't, the spirit of the Lord could like whisk you away somewhere while I'm gone talking to him. And when we come back here and don't find you, then for sure he'll kill me. Good point, right? But Elijah promises that he'll show up in Ahab's court today. So Obadiah runs back and gets Ahab. When Ahab sees Elijah, he says, is that you, you troublemaker? Now, I love this word troublemaker in Hebrew because it has specific roots in Hebrew that means stirring up water. What a great pun in this story of famine. The Hebrew Bible is full of these sorts of puns, and I haven't pointed them all out to you because we would never get finished. But this is the sort of richness in the story that we lose in our English translations. Elijah says, I haven't stirred up trouble for Israel, but you and your family sure have. You have completely abandoned the Lord and have followed Baal. So gather all the people of Israel together and meet me up on Mount Carmel. Oh, and be sure and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So just to orient you, um, this is a, a top, topographical map. Find Orient yourself by finding the Dead Sea, following the Jordan up, finding Sea of Galilee. Now look just to the left and kind of southwest of the Sea of Galilee, and there's the Jezreel Valley, that big green plain right in there. Um, Ahav's palace is in Samaria, which is um, just on the southeastern tip of that. And Megiddo, as you'll remember, the Megiddo Mountain Pass is on the western end. Mount Carmel is the mountain that makes up this big promontory that sticks out here. It's the place where the coastal plain dead ends. You can see the, the green flat part of the coast. It ends right there at Mount Carmel. So um, this is one of the most dramatic showdowns in the entire Bible. This is, I love this story. So all the people, all 850 prophets and King Ahav meet solitary old Elijah on Mount Carmel. 
They obviously figure Elijah can't stand against them. He's way outnumbered no matter what happens. Elijah stands before the people and says, how long will you waver? If Yahweh is God, then choose him already. And if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people remain silent. I mean, what can they say with King Ahab watching, right? Elijah speaks into the silence saying, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets here. Now we, reading the story, know what Elijah doesn't know, that there are other prophets of God in hiding. Um, we know there's at least 100 that Obadiah himself has hidden. But as far as Elijah knows in this moment, he's the very last one alive. This is his last stand. Elijah says to the people, get two bulls for us. Let the prophets of Baal choose whichever one they want. Let them build an altar and cut the bull into pieces ready for sacrifice. Let them do everything except light the fire. I'll do the same thing. I too will build an altar and will prepare a bull for sacrifice. But I will not light the fire on my altar either. Then you, prophets of Baal, call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh. Then the people will see who answers with fire to consume their sacrifice. Oh my, this is a all or nothing bet, isn't it? No matter what happens, it's unlikely that Elijah's going to make it out of here alive. The people murmur, this is good, this is good, let the gods decide for themselves. And Elijah tells the prophets of Baal, why don't you go first, since there's so many of you? Well, the prophets of Baal build their altar and kill their bull, and they begin calling on their God. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shout. But of course, there is no answer. They dance around the altar. They shout to Baal. They keep this up literally all morning long. Finally, at noon, Elijah starts saying, shout louder, he's a god after all. Maybe he's thinking, maybe he's busy, or I know, maybe he's away traveling. No, you think not? Oh, I know, he's sleeping. You better shout louder to wake him up. So the prophets of Baal shout louder, dance harder, start slashing themselves with their swords and spears. They are looking like utter fools in front of King Ahab and the people. Finally, as it comes time for the evening sacrifice, Elijah calls all the people over to his altar. He's not built the altar from scratch. It's an ancient altar one that had been in service to Yahweh before, but has fallen into disrepair. Elijah has repaired it by placing 12 stones together, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice, not just the 10 tribes of the north, but all 12. And he has placed his sacrifice on top of the altar. He then digs a trench around the altar, a big trench, and he tells the people, bring four large jars of water and pour the water all over the offering and the wood. And so they do. And Elijah says, do it again. And so they do it again. And Elijah says, do it a third time. 
and they pour water a third time. There is so much water on that sacrifice that the meat is soaked, the wood is soaked, the altar is soaked, and the trench around the altar is full of water. Then Elijah steps forth. He does not yell. He does not dance around. He does not cut himself. He simply prays. Oh, Lord God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God of Israel and I am your servant. Let it be known that everything I have done today, I have done at your command. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you are drawing their hearts back to you. This kind of calm, simple prayer is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. We are called to be simple people, relying simply and matter-of-factly on our utterly trustworthy God. As soon as Elijah finishes speaking, the fire of the Lord falls, burning up the sacrifice, burning up the wood, burning up the stones of the altar, burning up the soil under it, and licking up the water in the trench. And when the people see this, they fall to the ground as one and cry, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Then Elijah cries, seize the prophets of Baal and kill them. Don't let any of them escape. And Elijah says to King Ahab, go eat and drink, for I hear the sound of heavy rain coming. Now keep in mind, it's there's been no rain for three years. Nevertheless, Ahab leaves in a hurry. I'm sure he doesn't want the people to turn on him. Elijah himself climbs to the very top of Mount Carmel and bends down to the ground, putting his face between his knees, exhausted. And God says, go and look at the sea, Elijah. Poor, exhausted Elijah drags himself up and goes and looks to the west. Think about your map here, but there's nothing there. He goes back and sits down. The Lord tells him again, Go look towards the sea, Elijah. Elijah goes again. Nothing. This happens seven more times. I think Elijah gets tired of getting up and down and starts sending his servant to look. Because the seventh time, it says his servant comes running back saying, a cloud, a cloud, there's a cloud. It's tiny. It's only the size of a man's hand, but it's a cloud. So Elijah says, Go tell Ahav to hitch his chariot up and get off the mountain before the rain is so bad he can't get away. The sky grows darker and darker until it's black with clouds. The wind rises and a heavy rain begins to pour. Ahav races in his chariot towards his palace in Jezreel, but Elijah, overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit, tucks his cloak into his belt and runs. He runs so fast he beats Ahab back to Samaria. When Ahab gets to the palace, he tells Jezebel all that has happened and how all the prophets of Baal have been killed. Jezebel is furious. 
she sends a message to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of theirs. Elijah, of course, is scared to death and he runs for his life. He runs south into Judah and he finally makes it as far as Be'er Shiva, where he leaves his servant. But he himself is not safe even there. He travels on for another day and finally collapses under a tree. He prays, that's it, Lord, I'm done. Go ahead and take my life. And he passes out. Suddenly, an angel touches him and says, get up and eat. Elijah looks around and there by his head is a cake of bread and a jar of water. So he eats and drinks and then lays down again. The angel of the Lord comes back again and says, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. Now, remember, if you haven't been with us for the whole time, when it says the angel of the Lord, instead of just saying an angel, it means this is the Lord himself in physical form. If it was just an angel, it would say the angel comes back. When it says the angel of the Lord, this is the Lord ministering to Elijah in bodily form. So Elijah gets up and eats and drinks again. With this sustenance, he travels 40 days and 40 nights until he makes it all the way to Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai, the mountain in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula where Moses received the law. And there Elijah finds a cave and lays down to sleep. The Lord calls him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers, I've done everything you said, Lord. The Israelites rejected you anyway. They rejected your covenant, broke down your altars, killed your prophets. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me too. Elijah has given up. The Lord says, go out and stand on the mountain for I, the Lord, am about to pass by. As Elijah watches, a great and powerful wind tears through the mountain range, shattering rocks and ripping the mountains apart. But the Lord is not in the wind. Then, as Elijah cowers in the cave, a great earthquake comes. But the Lord is not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake comes fire. But the Lord is not in the fire. Then after the fire comes a small sound, a very little thing, just a a bare breath. And when Elijah hears this still small sound, he pulls his cloak up to hide his face and he comes to the mouth of the cave. And the Lord asks him again, why are you here? Elijah. And Elijah answers exactly the same way, saying, I've done everything you asked, Lord. The Israelites have still rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and killed your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord says, go back to where you came from. Go back to where you belong. When you get to Damascus, seek out Hazael. Now, Damascus is the 
capital of Aram. This is like enemy territory far to to the northeast. We, you know, this is where Ben Hadad and all those guys are. So he's the Lord tells Elijah to travel north through Judah, through Israel, over to the east, into Aram, seek out Hazael and anoint him king of Aram. Now, this is a totally bizarre thing to think that a prophet of God would anoint an Aramean king. But sure enough, it is going to happen. We're going to get to that story. Then the Lord continues, also anoint Jehu, the military commander, as king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, to become prophet after you. Jehu of Israel will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael of Aram, and Elisha will put to death any who escape Jehu. But know this, Elijah, you are not the only one. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So why is this such a big deal to Elijah that there were no other prophets? Why does he think he's so alone? Weren't prophets loners anyway? Well, as we talked last week, you know they actually weren't. We've already run into a couple of bands of prophets in the stories of Saul and David. The major prophets tended to have groups of disciples, just like John the Baptist and Jesus did in the New Testament. Scholars call these groups schools. So we talk about the school of Isaiah or the school of Jeremiah, for example. Um, We aren't talking about bricks and mortar, but about the men who gathered as disciples of the prophet. And it is these disciples who recorded the various prophecies that now have become these books of the Bible. And, And it's these schools of prophets who went around the countryside proclaiming the central prophet's words to the people. There are, of course, individual prophets. They're often associated with a town, you know, where they live. Like, remember how Samuel was associated with Ramah. But, but we're to the point in, in, in um, the history of these kingdoms that um, there begin to be bands, roaming bands of prophets. So I'm reading between the lines here, but I bet Elijah had a thriving school of prophets, and I bet Jezebel had every one of them slaughtered. What do you think? I bet Elijah is in deep mourning and grief, afraid for his life, exhausted by depression, and feeling utterly and totally alone, as if all has been lost. We're going to stop there. In our breakout groups, we'll reflect on Elijah's very human reactions. I've mentioned already that Elijah is as big a deal as Moses. We already know that a prophet like Moses is prophesied to be raised up before the Messiah comes. And now we know that a prophet like Elijah will be raised up as well. As we leave Elijah today, he thinks he's the only prophet left in Israel. And there's a story in Jewish lore. It's not in the Bible, but in the Jewish Midrash tradition, where the Lord comes to Elijah in this part, in this particular place where he's in this cave and, and says, Elijah, it was my covenant they, the people broke. Why are you more upset about it than I am? And then God promises Elijah that wherever there is a circumcision, which, as you know, is the sign of the fulfillment of the covenant, of a sign of belonging to the people of the covenant, Elijah will be present. And the mouth which testified that the Jewish people have abandoned my covenant will testify they are keeping it. And he's talking about Elijah's mouth. 
Uh, therefore, even to this day, whenever there is a circumcision, a chair is set out for Elijah. Uh, and throughout um, Jewish lore, uh, Elijah shows up at unexpected times and is always a harbinger of change, an announcer of big news. Uh, and that certainly seems appropriate. Today, we saw Elijah called a famine down on King Ahab's head. He caused the flour and the oil to miraculously never need replenishing in the widow's house. He raised a child from the dead. He lay his life and God's reputation on the line in front of all the people. He lifted the famine and watched as God himself passed by. And that's not even all. There's more, there's more next week. And yet Elijah seems totally stressed out over all of this. After his big showdown with Jezebel's prophets, after God shows up in a big way, just in the nick of time, after the rain comes, after all these major miracles, Elijah is hiding in a cave, not wanting to even get up off the ground. He's so depressed. So this is what we're going to talk about in our breakout sessions. The Lord's answer to Elijah was, well, what did you expect me to be in this great big wind? Did you expect me to always be in the earthquake? Did you expect me to always come down as fire? No, I am also in the still small voice, the gentle whisper. I am always with you. So we're going to go to our breakout uh, sessions now, and I want you to start here with the questions in the study guide. Um, and I, for those of you who joined after we got started, just I know this looks like a little bit different room. I'm in my sister's art studio in um, Rockport, so it's a much more interesting room than what you could you look at. Uh, but so we talked about Elijah and Pat's here. Yay. Hi. Um, hi. And we, I just wanted to kind of point out Elijah's humanity. I mean, he comes off as this really big Moses kind of figure. And yet here we have him at such a low point. And I just wanted to talk about a little today. So in your groups, um, the first question was, why do you think the Lord sent the wind, the earthquake, and the fire first? Well, we discussed it. We think you kind of answered that one a little bit for us um, in that. I, we're always expecting grand shows, you know, 40 day flood and the burning bushes and that we need to remember that he comes to us in still small voices as well. Yeah. 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 And one of the things we mentioned was those were dangerous things and God protected him from all those things. Mm -hmm. So he was mm -hmm. with him, but it wasn't the way he chose to reveal himself to Elijah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's I like good. that. That wasn't the way he chose to reveal himself because he could have revealed himself through those other things. Yep, he could have. That's good, Julie. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another, another thing that just occurred to me was that um, it also was perhaps a reminder to Elida that God has control over the elements. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he, 
there was the big demonstration at the sacrifice scene, you know, where the fire came down and consumed everything. And then that the rain came as a fulfillment of the promise of um, that, that Elijah had, had um, given as prophecy. But again, that wasn't where God showed up this time. You know, and guys, I think that sometimes as mature believers, he really wants us to take pause and to take our heart into such a place that we can become very discerning of what we hear and then be obedient to the things that we hear. Amen. Um, that doesn't come. That doesn't come as a new believer, does it? I mean, as a new believer, you're looking for all these great outs, outward signs and so forth. But I think the longer we become, you know, mature in Christ, I think he he, hold, he takes our boundaries that are five feet apart when we first get saved. He just brings it right into a very narrow place because that's where he wants us to be when it's all said and done. It's, it's almost like he takes our our face in his hands like a mama does. Look yeah. at him. Yeah. Yeah. About to talk that. to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the other thing that occurs to me here is, as we're talking, is that if you think about when miracles are happening, as we're reading scripture, I'm talking about scripturally so far, every single time there's a parting of the Red Sea or fire is falling yes. from heaven or anything okay. like that, it's because God is needing to prove himself to a large group of people who need who have been led astray by an authority figure. Hmm. Correct. God is needing to show up as a bigger authority person, you know, and demonstrate that he is God and whatever it is this other person is telling them is a lie. But that's not where this is like right to what you were talking about, Pat, because the, at Elijah doesn't need to have God proven to him like that. No. No. And, and God did prove himself when he showed up at the temple and put everything on fire. He already did that. Exactly. Yes. This is a really interesting point. It's like, it's like God was showing Elijah that, uh, that he, God, he or she, God, um, was not always in these big events. And right. maybe, maybe Elijah needed to learn that lesson, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because that's also the corollary of, you know, there was destruction by fire and homes fell down with the with the earthquake and, and the mountains shook and fell apart. And God was not in those natural disasters. God wasn't punishing anybody. Mm. And it's interesting that he was not giving that lesson to all the people. He was giving that lesson only to Elijah. Yes. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, why do you think it, he was giving it just to Elijah? I'm curious. What did you say? What was uh, because, no, I'm curious. Why do you think that? Why do you think God, having done what He had just done previously, why do you think He still needed to demonstrate Himself like He did to Elijah? Why do y'all think that? Because, because Elijah needed to hear it. Well, yeah. Apparently. Let me. I think I heard Barb. Let's let have Barb have the floor. Surely, it was it Shirley. Yeah, I just said it was just because um, Elijah's the one who needed to hear it. But what mm-hmm. did he need to hear? What was the message he needed to hear? I'm here. You're not alone. Mm. And that and that God acts through still small yes. events, not huge events. Yes, and I think that's the lesson for all of us in this story. That's what I was sharing is that 
we needed to focus on the still small voice because we've seen all prophets throughout the Bible, you know, fall back to human tendencies and, and question. And that's kind of what Elijah's doing. And we all need to know that he's not going to come to us in big burning bushes every time he has something to say to us that we need to hear him in still small voices. Yeah. Also, what you were saying, Pat, is why did he reveal himself to Elisha that way? I think Elisha facing 850 prophets and him believing he was the only one Mm -hmm. had to be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and And I think that there's a difference in what's getting communicated, because think about this. If you are in crisis mode, earthquake, fire falling from heaven, you know, storms tearing things apart, how much is your brain going to comprehend? Not much. Your brain is going to comprehend there's God. <laughs> That's God. But, but there isn't going to be dialogue. There isn't going to be closeness. They're simply going to be fall on the ground awe. Yes, you are God. Got it. You know, but it's only in the still small voice that God basically backs away enough, comes down in volume enough for us to have a conversation. I just have to confess that there are times when I wish that God would give me a burning bush. <laughs> and actually, it doesn't even have to be the whole bush. It can be the twig. <laughs> you know, says I do. I, you know, there are many times when I, I, to hear that way, I ask for a sign. Yeah, yeah I ask for a sign. But it, I, again, a f- more confession, it usually ends up being something small. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, as I call myself, call myself, put myself into that more um, uh, contemplative um, awareness mode, then I go, aha, there it is. Okay. So we're all familiar with that. But don't knock (laughs) it. We're all familiar with that phrase, uh, a small tap on the shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. It ends up being the most important message. Yeah, that's true. Well, and 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 what you were saying, Gail, about you know that we need to sort of get the adrenaline down to be able to really have a conversation. Um, that sort of triggered in my mind when you think about when God spoke to some of the other patriarchs and prophets that we've studied so far. Yeah, there was the burning bush to get Moses's attention in the first place. Mm-hmm. But most of the rest of the time when God was just speaking to Moses, um, it was more this conversation. And with Abraham, you know, it was going out into the night in the quiet of the night and saying, just look at the sky and yeah. see all the stars. And um, it was a conversational thing. It was a relationship. Mm-hmm. And um and what Elijah needed to know in this moment was that he was not alone. Mm-hmm. And, and in God, it, it would feel to me like, you know, if God was just quietly being conversational with me, that would be sort of like a, 
soothing oil being poured on me. And then God could say, you're not alone. You know, 5,000 other people that have stayed faithful to me and you're not alone. Mm. It's okay. And by the way, I'm here too. I like that not alone message. It's like God, it's like God was saying, okay, um, even if there's not uh, a huge wind and storm, even if there's not a hurricane, even if there's, if there's not a fire, that doesn't mean I'm not there. That doesn't mean I'm not with you. You know what, when Marlene was just talking, it reminded me of when I was teaching school. If a class was rowdy and out of hand, you could yell and scream all you wanted, but you were not going to get control of that class by yelling and screaming. But if you all of a sudden stood in the front of the room and talked like this in a very calm voice and said, if you can hear me, put your hand on your head. And one by one, you would see students starting to listen and put their hand on their head because you know what? They have FMO. No, what is it called? F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. (laughs) And so when you start whispering, they listen. And I think it's like that with God. God could beat us over the head. He could, you know, whop us up alongside the head with a two by four. And sometimes he has to do that. But other times he just has to stand in the front of the room and say, if you can hear me, put your hand on your nose or something to get our attention. I think that's great. And I find a kind of a perverse comfort in this story as well. Um, When I feel like God needs to show up and do a miracle and God doesn't do it. This story reminds me that just because God didn't show up in the way I wanted him to show up does not mean God didn't show up. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that takes a lot of still small voice time to to begin to feel the truth in that and mm-hmm. to begin to become aware of God in other ways, right? Then, like you pointed out, Andy, I mean, Pat, that you, you pointed out, like you might need as a new believer, like these Israelites coming in from the idolatry that they, they, they needed the signs and the wonders and the, you know, but they're not going to need it forever. That's just to say, yes, I am God. The next step is, and come on into the room. And here's this great big room where God is <laughs> and God is all kinds of other things um, to learn about and to get to know. So, I, I wondered in question three, why do you think after all of these things that Elijah did fearlessly, it seems like raising people from the dead, calling fire down from heaven, talking to this wicked King and escaping with his life from, you know, a thousand people who are out to kill him. Why do you think he seemed to have a nervous breakdown? We talked about that in different ways in our group. When there's the crisis, when you have to have a mission, something that you're needing to deal with that's significant, you get through it, you have a task, you focus, you stay committed to it, and you handle it. In the aftermath, when there's a letdown, an emotional letdown and exhaustion, you need to have a release. You need to 
find a way to calm yourself afterwards because you've just gone through a major challenge. And that's what Elijah went through. Yeah, and one of the one of the things that struck me is that after this showdown on the mountaintop between Elijah and all the prophets of Baal, and then all the prophets were killed, and you know, Elijah was probably expecting that there was going to be this huge return of the people to following Yahweh and everything was going to be fine. And instead, he had to run for his life mm -hmm. because, you know, it was just same old, same old. Nothing really changed from, from his perspective. Mm -hmm. And um, it was kind of, you know, the expression of coming down from a mountaintop experience. <laughs> um, he came down from that mountain probably expecting there to be this huge shift in the country. And instead, it was like, oh, no, she's still out to get me. I got to run. Yeah, the people um, clearly did not stand up to Jezebel. No, you know, she must have been a fierce and, and, and formidable. Oh, woman. yeah. Wait till next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but, you know, the other thing that occurs to me here is, um, you know, how I mentioned about the schools of prophets and how it apparently, you know, Elijah keeps saying, I'm the only one, I'm the only one. And how I'm reading between the lines that that probably means Jezebel has slaughtered his entire school, you know, and it's out for him too. I, I think that is a 99% probability that that is what has happened in context here. And I'm thinking that Elijah never had a chance to process his grief. And I'm thinking that Elijah is really angry with God over that. Not over not being able to process, but over God not protecting his prophets. It's interesting. He probably had some really good friends, <clears throat> excuse me, as part of those 450 prophets too. I mean, so he lost family members, if you will. So all the more reason he probably felt alone because all of those that he leaned into, all those men that he felt, you know, very close to and had deep connection with, now there's just vacuum. There's nothing. Yes. And, and where was God in that? Yeah. Good point. Mm -hmm. yeah he's he's i was just gonna say that he's he's human he knows god as well as anybody i mean like he's got to come back before the messiah comes <laughs> you know this is a, about as high as it gets elijah and moses and mm -hmm. he himself is having a problem with god not showing up when he wants god to show up you know, I think on top of that, Gail, there's also fear of man to further exacerbate things. So he's just, sure. he's getting a double slam here. Tell, talk to me more about that, because I think that is a hugely important viewpoint that I, for obvious reasons, often miss. Well, he, uh, he was obviously, you know, he walked with God. He clearly had a, a, just a deep connection with who God was because he had, you know, just of all the experiences he had, but Clearly, he was afraid of Jezebel at the same time. So one of the things we talked about in our group is if you had to put watermark on things, was there a greater watermark in terms of the fear of God or was there a greater watermark in terms of the fear of Jezebel? I think 
I think he feared God, but I think he feared Jezebel more. Oh, just by that, what he saw around him. Yeah. Just, that, yeah, because if if God let all his all his disciples get killed, God probably gonna let him get killed, right? At some point, he's next on the block. Yeah. yeah. That was what we came up with. But doesn't he kind of go back to his humanity in that in that we are all um sorry, my brain's failing me this morning, that we're all um, fallible. And mm-hmm. that's kind of fallible thinking for him. Mm-hmm. If he truly believes God is what God is, you know. I mean, I'm not saying that he shouldn't be afraid of man because look at what's happened. But I'm still saying in that, doesn't that kind of point to all of us as a lesson that even in our strongest faith that doubt's going to come in and we need to learn from Elijah that we need to listen to our still small voices. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but yes. I'm just saying that that just illustrates to me, like David, all, all these greats that we look to had were fallible. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I think that even the macro story of Israel and yeah. uh, the Hebrews becoming a nation by being miraculously saved from the most powerful nation on earth, having the Fed Sea part miraculously, miraculously being fed every day, and still they follow idols. I know. It's, this this yeah. story of Elijah is that in a microcosm. I think the, I think the stories are being narrowed down into a funnel to say, you know, this happens at the national level. This happens at our professional levels. This happens in our hearts. God's actions will never be enough for us. Mm-hmm. You know, Gail, I, when I was doing this at home and everything, I wrote down something that to me, Elijah was going through fear or frustration or both. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that struck me as we were talking about in our group is that in the Hebrew Bible, especially, I mean, we see hints of it also in some of those stories in Acts. Um, but in the Hebrew Bible, especially, they don't shy away from showing how even these great characters in the history of, of Israel. Um, how human they were, that they were not superheroes. They were just human beings. And um, and that is a comfort to know that they shared a lot of the same doubts and fears and and questions about the goodness of God and the and the power of God every other human has experienced and yet God still was present and used them and and did amazing things through them. Um, But they were just really, really, really flawed human beings. You know, on the flip side, I'm glad that my fallibility is not in the scriptures. That I'm not just out there. Saying, just going to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, just saying. Yeah. So, I think that when you're pointing that out, Marlene, also, I mean, 
as we've already talked about multiple times, has to do with Elijah's humanity, but it and you know, and our fallibilities and our vulnerabilities, but it also goes to you know, that these people were, you know, fallible, but they were used by God. Mm-hmm. And we are like that too. Yeah. So we can be used by God. I'm not fallible in the same way that, that Elijah was. But then again, I'm not as bold as he was either, <laughs> or as brave. And so, but there are ways in which he can use me if I only listen for that still small voice. And that God works it out so that, you know, when we do completely and totally screw it up, which pretty much every single one of these guys has done, you know, Moses and yeah, me too, Pat, mm-hmm. Moses, and uh, you know, he screwed up so bad. He didn't even get to go in the promised land. David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Solomon had so many wives, you know, sex was his problem and, and it destroyed him. And all of these all of these people, the Lord found a way to redeem. Not only, not only did he not throw them away, he clearly took them to his bosom, right? Yeah. Uh, at, at death. But he found a way to redeem their lives. Even though Moses at the end of his life was so utterly destroyed and discouraged because he couldn't go in the promised land. Mm-hmm. God, look what God did with his life. Look how the impact Moses has had on our world, right? On us, all these centuries, billions of people. Um, And the same with David, even as horrible as David was, the Lord redeemed his life during his lifetime and continued to call him a man after his own heart. It's, it makes me nuts to see pastors and Sunday school teachers whitewash the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew Bible characters. Because I think it's by stripping that richness out, we're denying people the knowledge of how much God recognizes our humanity and loves us anyway and will compensate for us. Yeah, we call that the God of second chances. Yeah. Yeah. And third and fourth and fifth and however many, you know, all God wants is that we face him <laughs> and try. All God wants is, is to be with us. And God, we have seen God go to extraordinary lengths to do that in any way, in any way we offer him, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, the last, the uh, last uh, question is probably a lot of what we're talking about, but why do you think Elijah's kind of nervous breakdown is recorded in the Bible? I think it's an encouragement for us. Yeah, we were talking in our group. That, uh, uh, Billy, oh, come closer. We can't hear you. Then. We were talking in our group that it is just fine to not be perfect, that we can go through really hard... Uh, hard emotional things and it's okay to acknowledge that and that we can just fall apart that we don't have to be on top of our game all the time and um as i was telling my group i I read about this study once where when you cry 
the, the in your tears is an enzyme that gets released and that's a healing thing for your body because under stress you build up these enzymes so so what i'm saying is that it's just fine in fact it's really healthy if you cry and feel sorry for ourselves <laughs> Mm -hmm. That's exactly what Elijah was doing, you know, and I also think that it having come through the Hebrew Bible this far, I would be willing to bet that we as humans have a different perspective on how we see other people who are struggling, sinning, doing wrong you know, all of a sudden, it doesn't seem as urgent to fix them. Pardon? One would hope. One yeah. would hope. Yes. Yeah. It's like, I, I feel much more comfortable just meeting them where they are and let God fix this. Yeah. It also, it also makes me feel better. That, I mean, because I'm, I mean, I, I see this big prophet who has personally spoken with God and has received, you know, you know, wonders, magical wonders have happened through these guys. And that's not me. And yet the lesson is still there. I, I forgot how I was going to phrase this. Sorry, but the, the still small voice that if this happens to them, then who am I to think it's not going to happen to me and that I need to still understand God's small voice is with us all. Yes. And we can also see that there was nothing special about these guys. Yeah. That this that yeah. could call us to things like this, if we will only be humble enough to let him. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think another thing is that we tend often in our churches, we tend to sort of discourage people from expressing doubt and anger at God and fear. There is this, there is this sense that if you show anything other than absolute devotion and elation, that God's going to smite you down. Hmm. And, and in these stories, you know, these are the great characters of the history of the Bible who are having these doubts and they get angry at God and they yell at God, you know, why didn't you do what I wanted? And they, and they get totally depressed and they, you know, do all this stuff and God just takes it and then says, okay, well, you know, this is what's going on and, you know, just follow me and I'm going to show you what's going on here. Um, and we miss that so often um, in, like you were saying, Pastor, in judging other people and <clears throat> in their lives. Um, yes, we miss that yes. that's not how God's working in these lives that we keep seeing in the Bible. Yes, yeah. and he doesn't, there's not times here, God doesn't, you know, when they start having their temper tantrums, God doesn't sit down and lay out the plan for them now. You know, so, no. oh, oh yeah. I forgot to tell you what the roadmap was. You know, that's God just yeah. doesn't operate with roadmaps. So you can just give that one up yeah. right off the bat, right? Um, yeah. but the other thing I'm sorry I was thinking especially with what Marlene and Joe said <clears throat> sorry that we and, and it ties in what you just said Pastor Gail 
we don't know what's going on in another person's life. And it gives us an opportunity to show grace because mm. we ha all have our challenges. They might be large and somebody can handle a large challenge or they might be small and somebody can't handle that small challenge. But for us to show each other grace and accept grace ourselves is an important lesson here. Yeah. I I think so as well. And the other thing I'd like to point out is if you list on your hand these major characters in the Hebrew Bible that we've studied, just the ones we've studied so far, think about, you know, Jacob <laughs> um, and Moses and Abraham and, and some of the women, you know, um, and, and David and Solomon and these big high points like you, these are the peaks of the mountain peaks, right? And I would be willing to bet that if they were in one of our mainline churches and their quote, sin was known, they would be denied leadership positions in the church. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And so, so that fact, they might even be ostracized. That needs to give us pause. How dare we judge someone yes. unworthy yes. of a leadership position because we see sin in their lives? Shame on us. Yes. My very first Lutheran pastor had a problem with drinking. And I feel that it's kind of the same in, in teaching that rather than help the boat float, we sink them. And mm. um, yeah, he pretty much got kicked out of the church instead of receiving the kind of um, pastoral or mercy or grace that we would expect him to give us if that was us in our position. But I wanted to ask you, Pastor Gell, what you mean about churches whitewashing. And Marlene, I wanted to also say to you that when you said something about how churches are preaching a message, I can't tell you the amount of times I've heard people say that when they reached out to a Christian person and they were struggling and things didn't work out, that the Christian person would say in response, well, you just didn't believe enough. Mm. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Work. It's, yeah, it's, it's your it's your fault that these things have come on you. It yeah. goes, you know, it's it yeah. goes all the way back to this ancient thinking, like Gail was yeah. saying. That, that we think that if something bad has happened in our lives, it's because we have done something that angered the gods, right. that angered God, and this is punishment, when it's just stuff that happens. Life, yeah, it's life that happens. Yes. Well, and that's, look at Elijah, he did everything he was supposed to do, and his exhaustion, climbing up and climbing down and doing all this, and in the end, he has to run for his life, and I'm sure that's part of his nervous breakdown is, well, what more do you want me to do here, God? Now I'm running for my life. But, um, but Pastor, you know, what do you mean by whitewashing the Hebrew Bible, if you don't mind me asking? Okay, I, I will answer that. But I wanted to finish to clarify one earlier point that I made about oh, sure. how I would be willing to bet that if, if church leaders, church hierarchies today had a Moses and Elijah, a David, a Solomon in their congregations and knew their sin or whatever, that they would deny them leadership positions. And, and how I thought that, I think that is wrong, that we judge people on their sin and deny them leadership positions. I want to have, there is one clarification that is also rooted in scripture. And that is, if that person 
is not worshiping God. Correct. If that person is leading people away from the knowledge of God, that's when God hops up and says, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh, you know, you may not lead my people. It's never been, God has never cut somebody off from leading his people because they were a sinner, even a current unrepented sinner. Okay. So just keep that in your back pocket in terms of the big question is, do they love the Lord and are they serving the Lord? You know? And are they walking that same path with us? So back to the whitewashing of the characters. What I mean is that when we, when and if we teach the Hebrew Bible in our churches, we pick out the heroic parts and we present the characters as heroes doing God's will. It is very rare that we teach them in all with all their warts like you're seeing here okay okay and i know we're way over time way 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 over time this is such a rich subject so i'm gonna let you go thank you i love you thanks everybody bye thank you bye